Our Gospel reading today is in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39 and going to verse 56. Let us hear the Gospel. Glory to thee, O Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise you to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. And let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. And turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 1. It's page 856 of your pew Bibles. How many of you have seen or read some version or other of a, a, a Christmas Carol? Okay, that's that's pretty good, very good. I'm thinking that's everybody, pretty much, right? There's a lot of film versions out there, right? And um, you know, typically, I'm old-fashioned. I, I usually think the old ones are, are better, but that's not exclusively true. I, I was raised on the one from the '50s with Alistair Sim, which is an excellent. Version, However, the older one with Reginald Owen from like the 30s is actually kind of awful. Um, there are some newer adaptations, of course. I thought that Patrick Stewart was adequate, as was George C. Scott. Then there's the CGI one with Jim Carrey. That was just kind of weird. And then uh, there's always the standbys, you know, the, the, the real classics, like Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol and, and Mickey Mouse's and Scrooged with Bill Murray, you know, the, the true classics that really are just irreplaceable. Um, but one version that I, I would say is surprisingly good, and it's our family favorite, even to my father, and he was a purist, is The Muppet Christmas Carol with Michael Caine. Now, if any of you sinners haven't seen that yet... <laughs> I have an assignment for you this afternoon. Um, Go watch it. It it will make you laugh and cry, and it's actually pretty faithful to the book, other than having two Marleys in it. Um, But it also has a very unique distinction in that it is actually a musical. And to the best of my knowledge, it is the first such adaptation. 
And that movie came out in, I think, 1993, right after Jim Henson died, and it seems like it shouldn't have taken quite that long to come out with a movie that actually made sense out of the title of the Dickens novel. I've always found it strange that a story can be called a carol and yet has no songs. Carols are supposed to be joyful songs, and yet Scrooge never sings in any of these movies until the Muppets came along. (laughs) Seems like an oversight, doesn't it? But thank you, Jim Henson Corporation. Um, But when you think about the, the vast multiplicity of TV and film versions of the Dickens novel, a natural question kind of arises at that point. Which is the original Christmas carol? It's kind of like asking which is the original Philly cheesesteak. No one really knows, right? Um, but it, it, it kind of depends on your definition. Are we talking about the first film, the, the first uh, you know, silent one, the first talkie, the first cartoon? You know, what do you mean? Uh, which is the first Christmas carol that anyone ever sang, for that matter? Well, when you think about that, I would say that the very first original Christmas carol was recorded here in Luke chapter 1. And it comes as a song from the lips of Mary, spontaneously and in circumstances that honestly defy all modern human logic. People who sing, I'm not really one of those to sing as much as I I should, and I've, I've confessed this before, Georgia holds this as a fault with me, but people who sing, especially the kind of people who sing spontaneously, typically sing, I think, out of joy. And that's not to say there aren't lots of sad songs out there, but I don't think people usually spontaneously sing out because they're sad. I know I don't. You know, I don't sing out just because I'm sad. I'm not Billie Eilish. Actually, to be fair, I've never actually heard her. I only said that name to sound hip and relevant, but I have seen pictures and posters of her, and she always looks like her puppy just died, so that's just what I think. Um, But I have a hard time singing if I'm sad. And I don't usually sing out spontaneously in anger, either, you know? How many of you sing when you stub your toe? I mean, I don't know, it just doesn't happen. How about while doing your taxes? Anybody? (laughs) Um, And I mean, this is why hold music is so insulting, right? You called something because you're angry, usually, and then the music comes on, and it's so joyful and chipper, and it's like it feels like you're being mocked, right? You know, like music when you're angry is weird. Uh, Sometimes I sing, or maybe hum, when I'm nervous, Uh, But that's more of a nervous tick, and it tends to be kind of mindless, repetitive sorts of things. But no, we we sing in joyful places, our happy places, like in the shower, right? Uh, We we tend to sing because we can't contain our joy, even if the joy comes from something as simple as hot running water. Uh, We tend to sing, I think, most when we are happy. And to sing is one of the most obvious expressions of joy, known to mankind, and it's only known to mankind, really. Animals don't sing like we do. Uh, Birds are maybe the closest thing, but they're just following their instincts. There's no profound feelings behind them, right? There's no deep interpretation of their life circumstances or anything, right? Only mankind can sing out in a sense of true happiness, and only mankind, therefore, can sing out in worship. And I think that's the most obvious thing that we see in this passage, that Mary is happy, and she sings in worship. The the first ever Christmas carol is sung by a Jewish teenager in the Judean foothills, and she sings because she can't contain her joy. And we are called to share in that joy with her and to read these words and to be stirred by them. But I think it's worth noticing the circumstances surrounding the song first. 
because this is not a song that can be explained by her earthly circumstances. She's not singing like the birds do. This is not an instinct thing. She sings counter to natural instinct, I would argue. I'll go so far as to say this might be the first time that she's felt any joy in this story at all. Now, why would I say that? Last week, I made clear that Mary had willingly accepted God's plan for her. Uh, This crazy scheme for God's invasion of time and space was something she couldn't reject, so she embraced it. I I said that verse 38 was one of the greatest statements of faith in all of Scripture, and I stand by that. But Mary's faith is admirable, and her obedience, I think, should be imitated. However, I am not convinced that she felt any true joy until verse 46. And I think that that position is defensible from the passage because of what it includes and what it doesn't. Uh, But it's also simple human psychology. She was human, right? Because again, what young girl engaged to be married wishes to be pregnant with a mystery baby? Who would pray for such a thing? And one of the things Luke omits entirely, but Matthew includes some of, is the tension that this situation created with Mary's fiancé, Joseph. Uh, This pregnancy nearly broke the engagement. That's not really that surprising. And if it hadn't been for an angelic visit to Joseph in a dream, he would have walked away from the whole situation. So Matthew tells that part of the story. But none of the gospel accounts report on the tension in Mary's home. This situation must have created one heck of a storm with her parents. Because you have to remember, Gabriel didn't visit them. They would have no reason to believe Mary's story. Mary has had a tremendous blessing dumped on her, but the task of explaining that blessing to everyone else was also kind of dumped on her, right? And Gabriel didn't give a how-to on how to share this news. He left a lot of unanswered questions, didn't he? So imagine being Mary... Suddenly pregnant, she has no experience with this or even with sexual intimacy at all. She doesn't know what any of this should feel like. It's probably initially hard to be sure she even is pregnant. Other than Gabriel's words, she would have no way to specifically verify it. She just kind of believes it. But, you know, you can't verify it because they didn't have dollar store pregnancy tests like we do now. I'm sure they're very high quality. They're right between the season's greetings cards and the ramen noodles, I think. But... So, so morning sickness might be the only physical assurance for her that God is at work inside of her, and, and Mary is probably unusually tired, and she may not know much, but she is keenly aware that this pregnancy is not something you can hide forever, right? It's hard to say what order these things happened in, but my guess is that Joseph didn't know about the pregnancy at this point. In fact, my guess is that nobody knew. I'm thinking Mary has no idea what to do with this new reality, so she does the obvious thing, and she runs away. It says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. I make particular note of the word haste. Haste sounds like running. I think Mary wants nothing more than to get out of Dodge. So she wasted no time, like as soon as Gabriel's gone, suddenly she has this urgent desire to visit her older cousin miles away to the south, and how she traveled unaccompanied is not explained, but this has all the marks of her being essentially a runaway. Unless Mary is somehow superhuman, I would say this sounds like she was scared. Like she doesn't know how to face her parents, 
or Joseph, or anyone else for that matter. She rightly fears that this blessing from God will cost her some of her closest relationships, her hopes for marriage, not just to Joseph, but potentially to any future husband. She will be marked from this point forward. She'll lose the trust of her parents, the sympathy of her friends and neighbors. Gabriel gave no assurances on any of these fronts. So Mary runs away, not officially. Uh, quite possibly she told her parents, look, I'm just going for a simple visit uh, to, you know, with cousin Beth. Uh, but I would not be surprised if she had toyed around with staying there. She could even just have the baby there and see what God did at that point. Maybe it was his plan for someone else to adopt the child. Maybe Elizabeth can raise him. You know, even in America, until fairly recently, uh, my understanding was not uncommon for pregnant teenagers to go visit with some aunt on a farm for a few months until the child came and then place it for adoption, leading to mystery relatives in random places I know this because my mom has found a few cousins out there in Minnesota through DNA testing for that very reason. But I think Mary is running away for similar reasons, not necessarily out of shame. She's done nothing wrong, but there is fear here. And this doesn't mean that Mary has no faith. To the contrary, her faith is incredible because courage is not the absence of fear, but the will to do the right thing in spite of your fears. I think John Wayne said that, but it's true. Mary's faith and Mary's fears are both very real. They sit there side by side in a sort of uncomfortable tension with each other. How many of you can relate to that? Now, what do you do when you're scared like that? Well, me, if I'm scared, I look for somebody to talk to. And prayer is great, but sometimes you want to talk to flesh and blood. You know, and this is why I talk, talk George's ear off every night. Uh, this is the, the blessing of, of marriage in that way. Uh, but what you're looking for is someone who will understand what you're going through, right? So Mary runs to Elizabeth because if Gabriel spoke the truth, Elizabeth might be the only woman on earth who's going to believe Mary's story. I need to talk to someone who won't think I'm crazy, wicked, or both. Someone who can hold my hand and tell me everything will be all right, who's not going to send me on a guilt trip. Mary wants to hide out for a while until she figures out what to do with this thing. So she has accepted God's will, but that does not mean that she has the warm fuzzies right away. Acceptance of God and his will is an intellectual duty. It is an act of the will, but feelings and emotions are reactions, and they're physical in large part. They're the response of your gut. And your heart doesn't always follow your head, certainly not right away. It can take a while for your emotions to catch up with you, and I think that's what Mary is dealing with. Because why else run to Judea? If accepting God's will was easy, she would have stayed home. She wouldn't risk traveling the highways alone just to find someone to talk to. She goes to Judah because her emotions haven't caught up with her will yet. Her words are full of faith, but her feelings are lagging behind. Accepting God's will and feeling good about it are not one and the same thing. Amen? You can face the death of a loved one and you can say with your mouth, God's will be done, but your heart will be screaming at you to bite your tongue. 
Our faith and our feelings are not always aligned. But we're not called to obey our emotions. Emotions are a wonderful gift of God. Uh, they are given to us to, they're designed to help us. Uh, and like so many other gifts, your emotions, they're a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. You know, you, you hear the saying, you know, I guess there's songs to this effect, how can something so wrong feel so right? That's a pretty destructive way to make decisions. We understand that. Faith in God requires us to make our feelings submit to his will. This is why Jesus pled with his father in Gethsemane. Let this cup pass, he says. That's his feelings. But then he says, however, not my will, but yours be done. Head over heart. He submits his feelings to the father's will, and that is what his mother did here. But I don't think her feelings caught up with her until she walked into Elizabeth's house and received this most unlikely of welcomes. In verse 41, it says, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I think it's... Jerry Maguire, I don't think I've ever actually watched that movie. What's, what's the line? You had me at hello, right? All Mary says is hello. And um, we don't know for sure whether Elizabeth was even expecting this visit. Uh, I think it's probably unlikely. There's no phones. There's no U.S. Postal Service. But even if she's expecting her, I don't think Elizabeth had any idea that Mary is pregnant. If you're in Mary's shoes, that's not a message you would probably trust to a courier at this state in the game. So Mary walks in, bag on her shoulder, and announces herself. And Elizabeth goes nuts, which had to be a shock, but also kind of a relief for Mary. It breaks kind of right past all the small talk, doesn't it? And the whispered explanations. And uh, moreover, it gives Mary what her heart most desires at this point. She's got a confidant. And the assurance that she is not crazy. God provides Elizabeth for Mary's encouragement, and Elizabeth is able to perform the role that normally would be performed by Mary's mom. Any young girl in a tricky situation needs what Mary needed. Not that she did anything wrong, but she still needed someone to talk to, to tell her everything would be okay. And Elizabeth was there to tell Mary that God was at work. Now, this alone is worth paying attention to and applying. In fact, I think this whole preface section here tells us a lot that we need to hear as the American church right now before we even get to Mary's song. Uh, this passage should be one that rings in our ears these days. Uh, Elder George was praying last week, and he made mention of the Dobbs case that was being argued before the Supreme Court earlier this month. Now, that case is being heard over a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks. And there is something of a companion case floating around out there uh, over a law in Texas that bans abortions once a heartbeat can be detected. And 
the long and short of this is that it has become a test case now for all abortion laws in this country, and there is once again a glimmer of hope that the Supreme Court might finally reverse that horrific decision they made in Roe v. Wade 49 years ago that removed all abortion restrictions in this country. Now, we as a church should all be praying for that outcome, uh, but we also know that overturning Roe will not be the end. Even if they strike down this abomination, the church will have work to do, and this passage kind of makes that clear why in several ways. Uh, One reason I've already kind of been teasing out is that young, unwed mothers need support. Now, Mary hasn't sinned in this story, but she is not any less vulnerable because of that. She's in trouble. And God hasn't explained exactly how it's going to turn out okay. But one thing any girl needs and that the church needs to be prepared to provide is a place of refuge, someone to talk to. Because even Jesus' mom needed someone to talk to and a place of refuge. Now, Elizabeth was that refuge for Mary, but if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, we're going to need a heck of a lot more Elizabeths. In fact, we need that whether Roe gets overturned or not. Now, Bright Hope is is one great way to reach women outside the church. Cheryl's given us several updates in, in recent weeks about what's going on there, but, beloved, the young women in the church need Elizabeths too. And... I would say to the women here of LVPC, that is my challenge to you, because this is not a role that I can play. The young women around you need your counsel and encouragement before they even get in trouble, and certainly after. And as Paul says in Titus 2, that is your duty. And the abortion industry in this country thrives on despair and loneliness and confusion, do not let those feelings have a foothold in this church. That is my charge to you. Bright Hope is is doing great things. They've got Door of Hope moving into the Stones' old house up the street there. Uh, We'd like to get involved. We may try to do like an adopt-a-room kind of thing with them. Uh, And we can all volunteer at Bright Hope. We we hope to do more of that in in the coming year. But I want us to make sure that our young women in the church never have to run away to find help. Women of LVPC, you have to take the lead on that. Another thing strikes me in reading this passage in connection to this, because I, I would not be the first to observe the truth that the first time Jesus was worshipped was by an unborn child. Many pastors have pointed this out. John is not yet six months in the womb, and yet he is capable of praise. And make no mistake, this was praise. This was not just a simple kick. I felt kicks of babies, and Georgia knows all about that too, but but this is he leapt for joy. It, It was an extreme enough thing that Elizabeth not only felt it, but immediately interprets this as a sign, an indication that Israel's salvation had to have just walked in the door. And she rushes from the kitchen to declare herself unworthy to even host Mary. Now, again, this is so counterintuitive because Elizabeth doesn't rush to the door to brag about her own baby, her own news, to to show off her bump, right? No, her, her immediate focus is on the child in Mary's womb, a baby she has no reason to even know about. 
Baby John jumps for joy because Mary walks in the door. He hears her voice and he knows that means Jesus is here too. And he can't contain his excitement and so Elizabeth can't either. But another thing that struck me this week was not just the amazing fact that John at five and a half months was capable of jumping up and worshiping Jesus. It was that Jesus, at a mere week or two of gestation, was able to receive it. Jesus first received worship before he had a heartbeat. And the first Christmas carol was sung to what many Americans today would blithely dismiss as a clump of cells. Worship begins at Jesus' conception, not his birth. Because the incarnation began nine months before Christmas. Now, beloved, our culture does not believe this. Our secular leaders think this is all pure superstition, but even our religious leaders are sometimes ignorant. I remember years ago hearing Al Sharpton say, if you think Christians disagree with abortion, you've just been talking to the wrong Christians. Now, he's maybe an extreme example, but I don't think he's alone in that sentiment. Whole denominations in our country would teach something very similar. We have a whole hierarchy of self-proclaimed philosophers and leaders and judges and doctors and politicians and even so-called ministers who will have a dreadful accounting to make one day. And they will stand before the throne of Jesus, the same Jesus who was once a clump of cells himself, and have to explain themselves. And it will be a fearful day for them. So, beloved, the scripture is not silent on these matters. We need to remember that, and we need to remember to tell others. Now, I talk about this element, the humanity of Jesus in the womb and Mary as a scared mother, because I think current events demand that we notice these things. And I think we need to be careful not to sanitize this story and to reduce it to a cute nativity set with everything in order and everything is quaint and adorable. Because from the beginning, this story is complicated. Because we live in a complicated world. And this was a crisis pregnancy by any definition. However, this passage is not primarily about fear or panic or judgment. The focus of today's passage is worship. It starts with John jumping in the womb like my kids when they hear their cousins at the door. And it's nice to know that you can worship without words, isn't it? Because the essence of worship is expressing joy in God's presence. It glori- it's glorifying God and enjoying him, as the confession says, or the catechism. And if all you can do is jump and kick, Jesus will accept that. And from John, it spreads to Elizabeth, his mother. She's the first person on record to address this baby as Lord. And moreover, she blesses Mary, not only for being the mother of God, but also for her faith, the fact that she believed what Gabriel said to her. Elizabeth is basically praising Mary for doing what her husband failed to do. She's telling Mary she did the right thing by trusting him. Zechariah's in the corner, and he can't say anything in response to this. (laughs) But the climax comes when Mary sings, because this is the first time, like I said, I think that she is experiencing the joy of what is happening. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, 
And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So God chose to enter history by means of a crisis pregnancy. And now as these two women, both with unexpected pregnancies, are standing there together, this spontaneous worship service begins and God gives Mary these words and not just the words, but the joy to sing them. Now, we don't have time this morning to analyze the song as fully as it probably ought to be. Uh, Pastor Green pointed out to me that this is very much imitating the song Hannah sings in 1 Samuel 2 when she sent her son Samuel to live with Eli. And I'm sure we could spend a whole day just analyzing the lyrics of this first Christmas carol, but I want you to at least catch the central theme of the song. Uh, it's kind of strange for a Christmas carol. It doesn't mention snow or winter or jingle bells or Jesus, or any of the details of the birth. It doesn't even mention the pregnancy, for that matter. Uh, we don't find out what the tune is. Probably not a chant, but who knows. Uh, but it's not like most Christmas carols, and, and that's probably because it's technically a pre-Christmas carol, I guess, because it would be strange to sing a little town of Bethlehem this early in the story, right? But... <laughs> The message of the song is very simple. In a nutshell, Mary is praising God because he sees his people, and more importantly, he sees her. He is turning everything upside down. He's humbling the proud and exalting the humble. And if you're Mary, a simple girl from Nazareth, that can only mean good things. She ultimately sees that God has given her a place in redemptive history, that she is part of a promise that dates back to Abraham and really to the Garden of Eden. She sees her place in the story. More importantly, she sees that there is a story. God is writing something. He's at work. And Mary starts to realize that what's happening inside of her is not just about her. It's about Adam and Eve. It's about all the patriarchs, all the prophets. It's about you and me. The hopes and fears of all the years are coming together in this living room of this small house in the Judean foothills. And this is not something Mary asked for. It's not what she wanted. But this is not about what she wants. It's about what she and the rest of the world really needs. How many of you have ever gotten a Christmas present that you neither asked for nor really wanted? Me too. George always says that's why I should give her a list. And I never do because I like surprises, but then the downside of that is I have no right to complain. We're still reading through the Little House books. There's so many sermon illustrations in the Little House books. It's wonderful. Um, uh, one of the years we were reading about when they lived in, in Plum Creek uh, in Minnesota, Pa Ingalls had to talk the girls into asking Santa for new horses. Uh, because that's what the family needed for the farm to survive. <laughs> and they didn't like it, but they agreed to wish really hard for those horses. And sometimes the best gift is not what you want, 
but what everyone needs. And when you become a grown-up, you start to realize that these things are the better gifts, and so you don't look down your nose at the new socks or a new drill or the replacement for the red car, uh, because those are the things <laughs> that you really need. And Mary has become a grown-up in this scene. She is learning that the best Christmas present is not something that you want, but something that you need. And God's people desperately needed a savior. I just don't think Mary felt the joy of that until she got to Elizabeth's house. But once she sees it more clearly, she can't help but sing. You've all seen or read, I, I would imagine, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. It captures this so well because in the end, after the Grinch has taken absolutely everything away that makes Christmas cozy and pleasant, the Grinch is shocked to hear all the Who's singing, even without all the stuff. And Dr. Seuss wasn't even a believer, but even he seems to get it. We sing Christmas carols because the best gift already arrived. Not just at Christmas, but even nine months earlier. The singing is more important than all the other festivities combined because singing is a big part of how we enjoy being with Jesus. I think even our culture knew this or used to. Uh, even if they don't know that music is actually a part of worship, I think they still, you know, they change all the music on the radio stations and the stores and everything else, right? Uh, but I think even that's changing. Nobody goes caroling anymore. When I grew up, we, we used to go around in, in Olney in Philadelphia, and, and my dad would bring a trumpet and everything else, and we would go with family friends, and we would carol around the neighborhood. And when I was like, you know, seven, this was well-respected, and people really liked it. And by the time I was 15, they were throwing snowballs at us and, and this kind of thing, and so we stopped doing that. And that's not just because it's the inner city. I, I saw my uncle was on Facebook yesterday complaining about how in his nice suburban neighborhood, people turned off the lights and hid when they went to carol. And even modern radio Christmas songs, it seems to me, are becoming less and less singable and also less joyful. Think about Christmas shoes and all the ones complaining about how your, your girl left you and you know how next Christmas I'll get even or whatever, you know. Uh, many of these things are they're not really carols at all. They're just trite, silly tunes or love songs or songs about lost love. Love songs with jingle bells, that's what we have. But we shouldn't surrender the Christmas music scene to our secular culture. So don't forget to sing this season. Now, I don't want you to miss the last verse, because there's something in there, too. Verse 56 says, Mary returned with her about, or remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now, this is interesting because Mary goes home. Not after nine months, but at three months, just when she's starting to show. <clears throat> what gave her the nerve to do that? It, it, her external situation has not improved over the course of three months. In fact, you could argue it's gotten considerably worse, hasn't it? This makes very little sense from a practical perspective. Why not just wait out the whole term? You can imagine the jaws dropping in Nazareth when she walked in the door. The rumor mills would start. Everything might fall apart. And Mary had to know that's exactly what would happen. She still has no guarantees that that's going to go smoothly. And yet she goes back to face probably a hostile crowd 
of her parents and her fiancé and her neighbors and her friends. So what changed that she was willing to go back? I believe the change happened when she walked in the door of Elizabeth's house. That's when she found her voice to sing. She didn't sing until John jumped in worship. Worship lifted her above her fears. Worship gave her the strength to go back. Worship reminded her of God's promises. Worship reminded her that he is faithful. How can she help but sing? How can any of us help but sing at Christmas time? God is with us, and he is coming again. He was conceived, and he grew, and he was born, and he died, and he rose again for us. That's the gospel we preach, and that gospel leads us to worship, and worship helps us to wait. So in this third week of Advent, this season of waiting... Remember that anticipating biblically means praying expectantly, joyfully greeting our Savior, but also remember to let the original Christmas carol remind you that worship begins by singing. Sing because God is with us and because we are made to enjoy his presence. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the songs we find in Scripture, Lord, not just here, but throughout the book of Psalms, Lord. I I said that it's hard to pray when when we're angry and sad, and yet you have songs for all of these things. You give them as a gift to us to teach us to sing and to pray no matter how we're feeling. But Lord, we thank you for this spontaneous song of joy. Lord, not because Mary had all the answers and knew exactly how everything was going to work out and had a game plan, but because she knew that you were good and that you saw her and that you see your people. You still see your people, Lord. You see each and every one of us. You know exactly what we need. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to sing your praises throughout the rest of this service, Lord, and throughout this week and the rest of this season and always. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.